One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar, and this is episode 6, The Decline of the O'Neills. Today we continue a journey we started in episode 5, through 10th century Ireland. An island that as we saw in previous episodes was being ripped apart by war and violence. This journey will see Ireland, and indeed Gaelic society as a whole, turned on its head through the 10th century, in an epic story of the ruthless pursuit of power. To begin today, we'll have a quick recap on what's happened so far, and then we'll start a journey where we'll encounter some of the greatest characters in medieval Irish history. Over the past few episodes, we saw Gaelic Ireland struggling to deal with the Viking onslaught, as life became frighteningly cheap. Society was increasingly dominated by aggressive, violent men. In what at times seemed like a never-ending cycle of violence, one kingdom, the O'Neills, grew in power, and in 908, under their high king, Flansinna, they landed a devastating blow on their old enemy, the O'Gonacht Kingdom of Munster. It was after this victory that the O'Neills seemed on their way to dominating the entire island, but before they could take advantage of their great victory, the Vikings returned after a decade in exile and launched a series of devastating raids and attacks on Ireland, destabilising the entire country. At the end of episode 5, the O'Neills themselves were trying to recover from a major defeat they suffered at the hands of the Vikings in 919 that saw the High King Niall Glundov killed. We pick up the story today as the O'Neills select their third High King in as many years, a man who will have to try and recover the kingdom's prestige after its savage defeat in 919. The future was uncertain, with everything to play for. In 919, when the O'Neill High King, Niall Glondov, was killed in battle against the Vikings, he was succeeded by a man called Donica Don Macflan, or in English, Dark Donica, son of Flan. As his name suggests, he was the son of the great High King, Flan Sinna. Donica must have been one of those people that felt the weight of massive expectation on his shoulders. His father was Flansinna and his grandfather was Mwea Shocknell, both legendary high kings amongst the O'Neills. So you can just about imagine what people would have expected from Donica. He had a hell of a lot to live up to. When Donica became king, he faced an uncertain future, but not one necessarily without possibilities. Donica was relatively young, and with the prospect of a long rule ahead of him, he had plenty of time to replicate the actions of his forefathers. 
although he faced a somewhat chaotic situation since the Vikings had returned. For an ambitious man, he had a good chance of forging order from the chaos. Of all the kings on the island, this young king, Dunica, was probably in the best position as he was ruling over the largest and most powerful kingdom. As he looked around him in 919, there was no insurmountable problems. Even though the Vikings had killed his predecessor and they had the potential to become a serious problem, soon enough it became obvious that they were mainly focused on gaining power in England and should Dunica make a concerted effort against them, he would have had a good chance of victory. In the early days of his reign, Dunica probably harboured hopes of building on his father Flansinna's great victory over the Ogonacht and push O'Neill power into Munster. But before he could ever think of expansion, he had problems to deal with at home. These were the same problems that every O'Neill High King had to deal with. You see, as High King, they ruled over two kingdoms, the Northern and Southern O'Neills. The Northern O'Neill Kingdom was dominated by a family called the Cane alone, while the Southern O'Neill Kingdom was dominated by Donica's family, the Clan Coleman. These two families rotated the position of high kingship between them, and for 200 years they had excluded the many other branches of the O'Neill family. But when Donica took power, this arrangement was getting shaky. Donica needed to watch his back as such. Before he could ever think of expansion, he needed to confirm the loyalty, or at least his supremacy, over the Northern O'Neills. In 919, Dunica got his rule off to a good start. A measure of an effective medieval king was his ruthlessness. And in his first three years in office, Dunica showed he was as ruthless as the best of them. He eliminated remaining opposition around him in the Southern O'Neills. He blinded one of his brothers and killed another brother, Donal, just to safeguard his rule. For people looking on, while it may sound very strange to us, he was kind of showing potential. In 920, he followed this up by defeating the Vikings in battle. Hopes must have been high. However, through the 920s, Dunica didn't really take advantage of his early successes. All glory, in fact, was being taken by the people Dunica was supposed to be controlling the Northern O'Neills. Through the 920s, the Northern O'Neills, over whom Dunica had never really expressed authority, defeated the Vikings on three occasions, once in 921 and then twice in 926. These defeats seriously damaged the Vikings, eliminating them as a serious threat for a few decades anyway, and gave Dunica one less thing to worry about. But, hidden in this victory, was a far greater problem for Dunica than the Vikings could ever be. This came in the shape of the Northern O'Neill's military leader. Next we'll see who this man was. The Northern O'Neill's military leader was a man called Murtoch MacNeil. Heir to the kingdom, his brother was actually the reigning king. He was the son of the previous High King, Niall Gundov, and from the accounts of his exploits in the 920s, he really comes across as a role model for any warrior. Indeed, when he would die, he would be eulogised as the Hector of the West. He spent much of the 920s in battle, reinforcing the dominant position of the Cane alone amongst the Northern O'Neills. As with any hero of the time, Murtoch was as brutal as he was brilliant. But this was part of the course. For Dunica, however, this man could become a problem. Murtoch would eventually become king of the Northern O'Neills, 
and then he would be Donica's successor under the strange O'Neill system. But it was clear Murtuk was ambitious and could easily become a threat to Donica's rule if he wasn't willing to wait for Donica to die to succeed him. It was clear for Donica he needed to control the northern O'Neill soon if he was ever to be a successful king. In 927, Donica was presented the perfect chance. That year, Donica held a gathering called the Fair of Taltu. This was an assembly of the powerful families of the O'Neills when they gathered at the royal site of Tara. The event had been far more important in earlier Irish history and by the 10th century it had become an expression of a high king's power. You can imagine this as being something akin to modern day political party rallies. There was obviously no TV at the time so this was kind of the equivalent of a showcase in power where the high king was sending out a message about who was boss. Clearly, it was an important event for Dunica. However, it was at this event he faced his first major challenge. What exactly happened isn't clear, but Murtuk MacNeil either tried to stop the event happening or challenged Dunica to battle at the fair. Now, although direct confrontation was avoided, this was a major affront to Dunica's rule. There was no question that this was bad for Dunica. He was king and he could not accept such a challenge to his authority, especially from a man who was not even a king yet. He had just been called out in front of what were the major families in his kingdom and in a society where physical force was so important, he could not allow someone to challenge him or else his great show of strength could easily become a show of weakness. Donica surely had to act. He needed to re-emphasise his authority. But amazingly, he did nothing. There was no major military campaign or no assassination of Murtuk. For Dunica's supporters and admirers, this should have set alarm bells ringing. Now, two years later, in 929, he did attack Murtuk, but the encounter seems to have been indecisive. And as we will see, Dunica was never able to gain control over his rival. This fear, failure or inability to control Murtuk would haunt him for the rest of his life. Worries people may have had after his relative inactivity through the 920s should have been confirmed by this. It was becoming clear Donica would struggle as High King. It seems the early actions of mutilating and killing his brothers were probably the most decisive thing Donica ever did. Donica would struggle to ever control the northern branch of the family. Indeed, he would really live in their shadow, and the shadow of one man in particular. Murtuk MacNeil. It seems the gene that had made Dunica's father, Flansinna, and his grandfather, Muel Shocknell, great high kings, skipped poor Dunica. He was the most ineffective, procrastinating O'Neill high king since reliable histories began in the late 8th century. In the years after the incident at the Fair of Taltu, Dunica never really gained the supremacy he needed to be high king. Because of this, he could not expand the power of the O'Neills. Indeed, if anything, their influence was getting less and less. For Dunica, he was presumably far more worried about the day when Wartok MacNeil would rise to power amongst the northern O'Neills. In 937, the Day of Reckoning finally arrived. Murtuk's wait was over. He was now king of the northern O'Neills, and he must have looked at Dunica, who, as High King, was technically his superior, with great disdain. These two men were like chalk and cheese. Murtuk, the quintessential man of action, solved his problems with the sword. 
You can just imagine how he felt about the situation. He was the king of the Northern O'Neills, but because of some old custom, he was supposed to be subordinate to a man like Dunica. It was intolerable. It seems there was inevitably going to be a conflict. For Dunica, he must have known that he was now facing into a conflict against a man with an army of veterans from his numerous wars against the Vikings and enemies within the Northern O'Neills. Dunica's chances of victory were slim. As 937 gave way to 938, Murtuk made his move. The exact details are not handed down in the annals. All we are told is Dunica, son of Flan, and Murtuk, son of Nile, made preparations for battle. However, given Dunica's track record and his slim chances of victory, it's pretty unlikely he provoked the conflict. There are multiple reasons why Murtuk would have wanted to fight Dunica. His inept rule was impacting on the overall power and prestige of the O'Neill family. Just as the O'Neills prepared for an all-out civil war, the annals tell us, God brought them to peace. That peace should emerge where war was possible is pretty unusual for Gaelic Ireland. But we can assume that God may have pointed out the destructive nature of the war, and that Dunica and Worthock had in fact common enemies elsewhere. They appear to have agreed a treaty of sorts, which would see the O'Neills engage on an aggressive policy of expansion. Peace between these two meant a frantic three years of war and destruction for everyone else. This new situation obviously suited Murtuk. He had come off the best. Because his physical confrontation became the name of the game, Dunica began to fade in influence and power, as the battle-hardened Murtuk's star just rose and rose. He could take comfort in the knowledge that all gains would come to him as he was going to succeed Dunica. In 938, Murtuk and Dunica began expanding the influence of the O'Neills when they sacked the Viking settlement at Dublin and a small territory the Vikings had carved out around it. This was in response to a raid on the monastery at Kilcullen earlier that year, but it was also a demonstration of what was coming down the line to anyone who was going to dare stand up to the O'Neills. The rest of Ireland must have waited with bated breath to see what the following year would bring. However, 939 brought the most unexpected of events, when suddenly the advance of the O'Neills ground to a halt, when the Vikings showed they wouldn't lie down easily. The Vikings, campaigning in Ireland and Britain, had grown increasingly weaker through the 10th century. They had focused all their energies on England for two decades and then had suffered a crushing defeat at Brunanburh at the hands of the Anglo-Saxons in 937. So, two years later, it must have shocked everyone when the Vikings from the Hebrides, islands off the coast of Scotland, launched a daring naval raid on the Kingdom of Aelach, homeland of the Canaleon and Werthuk. Amazingly, they were also able to kidnap Murtuk in this raid. For Murtuk himself, taken on a Viking longship, it must have seemed like he was a dead man. He had fallen into the hands of the enemy and could expect nothing less than death. The Vikings now had a chance to land a significant blow against the O'Neills by killing Murtuk. But, ever the astute businessmen, it seems the Vikings ransomed him back. No matter how much wealth they got for his ransom, the phrase short-term gain for long-term pain springs to mind. These Vikings would personally live to regret this. In 940, Murtuk and Dunica went on another campaign, 
but unsurprisingly, they decided to leave the Vikings in Dublin well enough alone. They instead headed into Leinster and Munster, forcing submission in both provinces, and were able to return north after what had seemed to have been a relatively uneventful campaign. This, however, was just the calm before the storm, because the following year, Murtagh brought the O'Neills to the verge of being complete overlords in Ireland. The year began as Murtagh decided to expand the power of the O'Neills further into Munster by attacking small territories on the periphery of the kingdom. This was where the war really got messy. Murtagh and an army of the O'Neills attacked the small territory of the Dacia who lived in modern-day County Waterford on the south coast. The Dacia were in no way able to stand up to the immense military power of the O'Neills and Murtagh brutally forced submission. According to the annals of the Four Masters, he totally plundered and ravaged the entire country so that they, the inhabitants, submitted to him. After what was a short, if brutal, campaign, Murtagh left his new territories and returned north to the kingdom of the O'Neills. He had way bigger plans for later in the year. For the Dacia, though, they must have known their submission spelled serious trouble. You see, before Murtagh ever arrived on the scene, the Dacia had been ruled by Cialacón, the king of Munster, and he was furious when he discovered that they had submitted to someone other than him, even if they had had little choice in the matter. As the Dacia struggled to recover from Murtagh's violent attack, they knew they could expect retribution from Cialacón. Indeed, those burying the dead could expect to join them. Later, in the same year of 940, Cialacón vented his fury. According to the annals of the Four Masters, a slaughter was made of the Dacia by Cialacón and the men of Munster because they had submitted to Murtagh, son of Nile, and he slew 2,000 of them. For the Dacia, they were caught between a rock and a hard place. As the O'Neills expanded south, Cialacón, the king of Munster, was attempting to maintain his power and they were caught in the middle. This was the reality of daily life in medieval Ireland, where individual people's lives were eaten up in a horrific game of power politics. While Cialacón was attacking the Dacia for submitting to Murtagh, Murtagh himself was busy gaining vengeance for his kidnapping in 938 and also showing his skills as a military tactician. For a century and a half, the Vikings' major advantage had been that they could launch naval raids, hitting in unsuspecting locations, and then being gone before defence could be organised. Murtagh, however, learned from this, and later, in 941, he launched a stunning naval raid on the Viking bases of the Hebrides, in retribution for the kidnapping of him three years earlier. This raid must have shocked the Vikings. It must have been so strange. They had, after all, controlled the seas for most of the 9th and 10th century. This was their great military advantage, and now it was being used against them. Their era of domination was being challenged. Indeed, it was coming to an end. After this raid, Murtagh returned to Ireland to hear the news that Cialacón had attacked the Dacia, in what was essentially an affront to Murtagh. Cialacón needed to be taught a lesson, and no better man than Murtagh. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. In 941, Murtuk decided he was going to punish Kjallakon for attacking the Dacia after they had submitted to Murtuk. Normandy, medieval warfare drew to a close in winter. You can just imagine the logistical nightmare of moving large numbers of warriors in wet, windy weather along muddy tracks. However, as winter approached in 941, Murtuk defied military convention and gathered the various families of the north and selected a thousand warriors who were about to embark on a major mission. They donned heavy leather cloaks to protect them from the weather this would give Murthuk his name in history, Murthuk of the Leather Cloaks, and they set off to break remaining opposition to the O'Neill and teach Kjallakon a lesson at the same time. When this army turned up in enemy kingdoms, it must have really stunned people. You can just imagine this army appearing out of the mist and rain, covered in heavy leather cloaks. It's no wonder they faced little opposition as they moved through Dublin and Leinster and Munster and Connacht. When they arrived back in Aelok, home of the Canal Own, there was little doubt in Kjallakon's mind who was in control, because he was with Murtuk after being taken hostage. The O'Neills, and Murtuk in particular, were all powerful. Not only was Kjallakon being held hostage, but also the King of Leinster and Blaker, the King of the Vikings at Dublin. The major question now was not who was the most powerful kingdom in Ireland, that was unquestionably the O'Neills. But who was the real king of the O'Neills? Technically speaking, it was Donica. He was High King. But it's been a while since his name has cropped up. Murtuk had just defeated the O'Neill enemies on his own with a northern O'Neill army. He also held the King of Munster, the King of Dublin and the King of Leinster in Aelach, his kingdom. This created an uneasy situation. Donica must have looked on nervously. Could he really tolerate such a rise in Murthuk's personal power? But did he dare do anything about it? Ultimately, it didn't come to this. In reality, everyone knew Murthuk was the most powerful. But he seemed happy to wait for Donica's death to succeed him, so he passed the hostages over after a few months and avoided any confrontation. For these kings, being passed over to Donica, the future was bleak. O'Neill power seemed to be all-encompassing and things would surely only get worse for them when Donica died and Murthuk became High King. For Murthuk himself, things looked pretty good. Year by year, Donica was becoming more irrelevant and even though Donica was High King, 
Murthok was able to dictate the direction of the expansion of the O'Neill kingdom, which would all fall to him anyway when Dunica died. He still faced major enemies in Ireland. The Viking settlements were never easy to subdue. And illustrating this point, in 943, the Dublin Vikings, showing their bravery, verging on the stupidity, attacked the northern O'Neill in a raid on Armagh. Murthock and his army moved to head them off in modern-day County Louth. As this army, who had defeated all before them, faced the Vikings down, they were unexpectedly routed and Murthock was killed. In a way, this was inevitable. For a man who had spent his entire life fighting, someday his luck had to run out. The Annals of Ulster aptly eulogised this great hero of early 10th century Ireland as the Hector of the West, in reference to the hero of Troy. Classical analogies were of little use to Murthock's family, the Canale Owen. Murthock's death spelled disaster. How could they replace such a man? In reality, Murthock was irreplaceable, and the authority and prestige he had carved out for the Canale Owen started to fall apart. Although no one could possibly have seen it at the time, the O'Neills probably reached a zenith in power in 941, when Murthock had completed his circuit of Ireland. No other O'Neill High King would surpass this power, although they would see a temporary resurgence in power towards the end of the 10th century. The O'Neills were beginning a long, slow decline. In 943, Murthock's family, the Canale Owen, must have been in a state of collective shock and stress. In a certain way, they must have felt cursed. This was the second time this had happened, that a charismatic Canale Owen king had been killed early on in his career. Only 24 years earlier, Murthock's father, Niall Grundov, had been cut down in similar circumstances before he could make his mark. I guess this was a cruel irony for a family who produced such great military leaders. Their hopes of becoming the dominant family in the country were dashed in the aftermath of Murthock's death, but their misfortune was only beginning. As you can imagine, uncertainty spread through the northern O'Neill kingdom on Murthock's death, and in a society like Gaelic Ireland, this must have been frightening, as anyone with ambition started to sharpen their swords, preparing to take advantage of the situation. Although Murtuk's brother, Muelrunig, did become king, this didn't resolve the situation. In the northwest, a man called Rory O'Connor was watching the situation closely. He was king of the Canale Connell, a family who had long been excluded from power within the northern O'Neills by Murtuk and his family. This presumably bred resentment and jealousy, and in the chaos that ensued after Murtuk's death, Rory took vengeance for 200 years of playing second fiddle to Murthock and his family. He picked his moment carefully and struck at the canal own when they were attempting to reorganise themselves. He killed Maelrunig and seized the kingship. For Rory this must have been a great moment. You can just imagine he was probably raised on stories about how his forefathers had once dominated the Northern O'Neills. And now, after 200 years, he had finally retaken the kingship. This was a major moment in Gaelic Ireland. 
For nearly 200 years, the same group of rival families had dominated the Northern O'Neill Kingdom and the Southern O'Neill Kingdom, and a similar pattern was reflected in other kingdoms around the country. Rory was the first to break this stranglehold, but he was symptomatic of what was coming down the line in the future. His seizure of the kingship of the Northern O'Neills was just the start of a trend which would see dynasties challenge the old orders. Soon Donica's family, the Clan Coleman, in the Southern O'Neills would face a similar challenge, while in time, even the ancient power of Munster, the Ogonacht, would see their position challenged. The winds of change were clearly blowing. In 944, Donica Don Machflan, High King of the O'Neills, died. He had achieved very little in his reign as High King. In spite of his poor leadership, he had miraculously ruled for 25 years. His long reign was largely down to the missed opportunity and misfortune of others, particularly Murthuk. Medieval chroniclers seem to have had a pretty low opinion of him too. He only gets a one-line obituary in the Annals of Ulster, which is pretty unusual for an O'Neill High King. And he's completely excluded from a list of High Kings in a historical text called The Prophecy of Berakon. The Prophecy of Berakon is a strange history of Ireland and Scotland, which is written as if it's a prophecy from the 6th century, when it was really written in the later medieval period. After Dunica's death, confusion reigned, and this was a dangerous situation for Dunica's family. Dunica's family, the Clan Coleman, had dominated the southern O'Neill kingdom for centuries, and this bred resentment. Many of those excluded families saw Dunica's death not as a tragedy, but as an opportunity to end Clan Coleman control. Ironically, it was two families who had once been allies of Dunica who had made the greatest gains from his death. Dunica, through his reign, had developed a series of alliances with minor kings throughout the island. One such alliance had seen Dunica have his sister married off to a man called Mwelmwehig from Brega. The son of this marriage was a man called Kungaluk Knugba, and he would go on to cause untold problems for Dunica's family. Although Kungaluk was technically Dunica's nephew, this wasn't the close relationship we would take it to be. Dunica would have had dozens of very similar relations, and in a highly patriarchal society, Kungaluk would have inherited very little rights to power or connection to Dunica through his mother. However, Gaelic Ireland was changing and Kungaluk would not let minor details hold him back. In the weeks after Dunica died, Kungaluk acted quickly and decisively killed Dunica's own son and heir, and Kungaluk became king of the Southern O'Neills. Almost overnight, he had ended two centuries of Dunica's family's rule over the Southern O'Neill kingdom. The world of the O'Neills was in complete change. New families had emerged in both the Northern and Southern kingdom. But this created a huge problem. How could these two new families, who had risen to power, figure out who was High King? There was no tradition or custom between these two families. This meant one thing, and I'm sure you're guessing what it is, war. For the majority of people, the peasants, the slaves, nearly all women, this just spelled disaster. Their lives weren't going to change, no matter who became High King. All it meant for them was increased misery and turmoil if they had the misfortune to be caught up in a civil war that was going to consume the O'Neills for nearly a decade. 
uncertainty was also brewing outside the O'Neill kingdom. In the south, in Munster, a man given a boost by an alliance with Dunica was starting to chip away at the old power in Munster, the O'Garnacht. In the 930s, the O'Garnacht had started to reorganise under the king we met earlier, Cialacón. In response to this, Dunica had supported a minor family in Munster, known as the Dalcash, led by a man called Kenethig MacLorcan. Dunica hoped that through his support of Kenethig and the Dalcash, this would keep the O'Garnacht busy and stop any major force arising in Munster. But how wrong he was. This Kenethig MacLorcan would begin the rise of the Dalcash, who in time would become one of the great rivals of the O'Neills. Donica should have realised that this Kenethic was no ordinary man. From the little we know of him, his drive and ambition were insatiable. One man who could see the threat he posed, though, was the King of Munster, Chialacón. Once Donica died and Kenethic lost his powerful ally, Chialacón decided he would teach this aspirational king a lesson. Kenethic MacLorcan and the Dalcash were clearly becoming a force to be reckoned with, and for Chialacón, who was the King of Munster... This was intolerable. He came from a long line of Ogonacht kings that stretched back centuries. While this upstart, Kenethic MacLorcan of the Dalcash, had a royal lineage that stretched back all of five minutes. In a battle fought at Gurthrohokon, Calicon did successfully defeat Kenethic, but the setback was only temporary. The cat was out of the bag, and nothing would stop the rise of Kenethic MacLorcan and his family, and in particular, a son called Brian, known to history as Brian Baru, who was only a three-year-old boy when Cialacón defeated Kenethig in 944. In the short term, there was a major conflict on the horizon over the kingship of Munster. Ireland faced an uncertain future. In the north, the O'Neills were in crisis. Two new rulers of the northern and southern O'Neills, Rory O'Connor and Cungalach Knugba, were about to go to war. Meanwhile, at Dublin, the Vikings, under their first Christian king, Anlov Carlon, refocused their energies on Ireland. Uncertain times certainly lay ahead. Tune in next time to see what happens. Until then, Sloan. And don't forget to keep your feedback coming to history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com